Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Good morning, everybody. We are coming to you live from Blastoff Studios in Times Square here in New York City. This is... Good morning, New York, and it is Tuesday, October 13th, and I am your host, Vince Rocco. Good morning, everybody. We have a fascinating show today. We're going to talk about everything legal, legal from an agent perspective and from a deal perspective. Here in New York City, as we always talk about, our deals in real estate are much more, much different and a lot more complicated than anywhere else in the world. I have a, a guest today who is very instrumental in New York residential real estate, among other things. Neil Garfinkel is the partner in charge of AGMB, Abrams, Garfinkel, Margulis, and Bexit Real Estate and Banking Practices. His legal, expert, his legal experience is diverse, and his practice focuses on all aspects of commercial and residential real estate title, banking, and lending law. He further advises clients on trust and estate issues and elder law issues as uh, those relate to real estate and lending transactions. Uh, through his affiliation and participation in REBNY, which is the Real Estate Board of New York here in New York, he has become acutely aware of the many issues that face his real estate broker clients on a daily basis. Accordingly, he counsels his clients on commission disputes, licensing and disclo- disclosure requirements, agency issues, employment and wage law, strategic alliances, and affiliated business relationships and discrepancies. Actions instituted by governmental entities. Wow, that's a big plateful. Easy for you to say. (laughs) Good Lord. It's a pleasure having you here today, Uh, Neil. Good morning, and thank you for coming. So um, let, let, let's get into it. I mean, I want to discuss New York real estate agents and how the laws, Department of State and the Real Estate Board of New York apply. There are always many misunderstandings here. So if I'm a licensed real estate broker and I have been asked to join my co-op board, I live in a co-op, I'm excited to be in the building, I've been asked to join the board, you know, is there any law or regulation which would permit me from serving as a co-op board member because I'm a real estate agent in New York? Sure. So there is no particular law that prevents you from serving on your co-op board and doing a transaction in your building. The bigger issue presents itself um, when you have, uh, when you look at the obligations that a co-op board member has to its board versus the obligations that an agent, a real estate agent has to its clients. So you could find yourself in a position where you have an obligation perhaps to keep something confidential as a board member, but have an obligation to disclose to one of the parties. And therefore, the concept of having a fiduciary duty to the board and having a fiduciary duty to the the client or uh, someone participating in the transaction can clash. And therefore, we recommend that you don't do both, that you don't serve on your board and do transactions in your building. Now, if you are on the board, for whatever reason, and you are doing a transaction in the building, do you step aside from that decision process when, when your client, your customer, comes up for review in front of the entire board? Do you step aside because you really it's not fair for you to vote? Sure, so, your client. Yeah, there's two different things that are happening there. That would be a situation perhaps where you were working on a transaction and a buyer was up for consideration. And yes, you would absolutely recuse yourself. Um, we're more concerned with issues of disclosure, though. Once a board member hears something, they right. can't flush that. So right. they have to act on that. And they may have an obligation to present that information to one of the parties to the transaction. 
In New York, uh, a seller's agent, for example, has an obligation to the seller, but also has an obligation to the buyer. And they have an obligation to disclose any fact known to the agent which could materially affect the, the value or desirability of the property. And so that's the concern. That's very important, and that's a, it's a huge concern. So disclosure, if you know something, you've got to tell about it. You've got to talk about it. All right, so how does a licensed real estate professional in a state that does not have reciprocity with New York obtain a New York real estate broker license? Can they use their out-of-state experience to qualify for a New York state broker license? So they can. New York state um, will recognize uh, if an agent uh, broker is practicing in another state for longer than three years and they'd like to apply to New York, uh, New York State will permit them to use that experience. Uh, in New York, to, to obtain a license, you have education requirements. You have to take a certain amount of classes. You need to have experience. And you can meet your experience uh, requirements by virtue of being and doing deals in another state. But you still have to take the actual broker test, though, You correct? do. There, there's a handful of states that permit reciprocity with New York, and mm-hmm. so in some cases you might have to live in the, uh, you know, make it your primary residence. Um, in some cases you can just, by virtue of having a license, practice in another state as well. Correct. What are the facts about um, being exempt from meeting the continuing education requirements for, for real estate brokers if they are licensed for longer than 15 years? I remember when I was uh, back at Halstead, I worked there for 10 years and a bunch of um, my agent friends were exempt from continuing education because of this 15-year rule or whatever. But, you know, I have to tell you something. It was confusing back then, and it's still confusing today. I'm in mm-hmm. the business 14 years. I still have to do continuing ed every two years, and I, mine is coming up in the next, I don't know, four or five months which I dread of course. What what is what is this actually? Sure. So it's a great question and you know I host the the Rebney legal line every day for agents to call in. We get this question a lot and yeah. there's a, a confusion it's not the continuous um, uh, being licensed for 15 years. The key was when they changed the law, they added um, some requirements. Um, they that was in 2008. You had to have been licensed by 1993. So, so you would have had to have had your license prior to 93, and they're going on for the 15 years. Someone who's been practicing for 15 years, has their license for 15 years, is not exempt unless you had it prior to 93. Ah. Now, now, Sarah, that's news to me, and I probably don't Sorry. remember that uh, when it was explained to me. But let me ask you, so what, what's 1993? What, 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 is that, what about that year is so special, and why anybody prior to 93 being licensed is now exempt. I don't, I don't, sure, get I don't, I don't know that there was any magic to that other than when I guess there was negotiations, uh, about changing the legislators were changing the statute that there was this carve out for, and I guess they picked 15 years as a, as a good period. So, so, so then it's fair to say that if my agents come up to me, which, you know, occasionally they do once or twice a year, say, Hey, what is this 15 year rule? Unless you were licensed before, uh, it's July first, nineteen July. Yeah. Anything after that, it doesn't matter. You just you, right. You're you're a regular agent or a broker. You still Welcome need continuing education. Continuing yeah. So the other thing, you know, Vince, <laughs> I want to just bring up because we get this a lot too. Is that um, uh, if you don't have your continuing ed requirements in place, mm-hmm. some people don't practice on a regular basis. Right. There's a two year window where you can't do anything that would require a license, but your license doesn't expire. So it's effectively put on hold for those two years. Once you meet your continuing ed requirements, you can submit your application right. and then you are officially licensed. That's again. another fuzzy point for a lot of agents. And I actually had that come up with a couple just. 
just last year. Interesting. I understand the New York law has changed with regard to sharing commissions. And am, uh, am I allowed as a broker or an agent to share a portion of my commission with either the seller or the buyer in a transaction? And, you know, believe it or not, it sounds like a little strange, like why would you need to do that or want to do that, but it does come up. Yeah, it, it comes up a lot. And yeah. another yeah. great question. Uh, so the Department of State, which regulates real estate licensees in New York, has consistently taken the position through opinion letters and so on that um, a real estate broker could share their commissions with a party to the transaction. So it could be a purchaser, a seller, landlord, tenant. It had to be a party to the transaction. Their position was actually contradictory to New York state law. So this past December, the governor signed into law um, legislation uh, which made it very clear that, in fact, a real estate broker can share their commission with a party to the transaction. Now, we're talking about an actual commission, not a, a gift card or, or, or a gift at a closing table. It actually can and- be anything that you'd like it to be. So oh, wow. a gift certificate to Home Depot, $5,000 in cash. But the key is that it was a party to the transaction. And that party can't have been acting as a real estate broker. So as long as they were a participant, they weren't doing anything that would require a license, they can receive that incentive. And that's the concept. Okay, because most people are under the impression, most agents rather, are under the impression that the only people, the only you know, people eligible for a commission would be an attorney because they are licensed by the Department of State just because of their legal um, degree and another broker. So bringing in a seller or a buyer who's not really, you know, licensed to to, to transact real estate, it's interesting. Um, and again, this does come up uh, quite a lot, actually. So. Yeah, and, you know, the idea is to benefit the consumer. So New York... Department of State doesn't set commissions. It's a free market, and you can set whatever commissions you want, and you can try to incentivize a consumer if you'd like. Gotcha. All right, moving on. The co-op board of a building recently approved a purchaser but conditioned the approval by requiring the purchasers to put the equivalent of one year's maintenance in escrow. Can the co-op board require this? And what happens if the purchaser is unable or does not want to meet that requirement from the board? So just for the listening audience out there who is not familiar with uh, what this may be about, co-ops here in New York City have maintenance uh, charges per month, like uh, HOA fees you know, around the, uh, the rest of the country. In, in condos. And so sometimes if the board feels that a candidate is not qualified enough or doesn't make enough money or the debt to income ratio isn't high enough, mm-hmm. they may require six months, one year, or two years upfront for maintenance. So my question to Neil this morning is, can the co-op board really ask this and is it legal to do so? So there's actually two components to that question. The first is, well, what can the co-op board do? And uh, co-ops, uh, because um, purchasing a co-op is actually not real property. It's you're purchasing shares and a proprietary lease, uh, and therefore it's treated as personal property. Uh, the law gives a co-op the right to uh, exercise what's called the business judgment rule. They can make decisions about um, who they would like to approve for their building. They can't violate any fair housing laws, but they can make economic decisions, and provided they use what's called the business judgment rule, um, that they're acting in the best interest of the of the co-op and the building, um, they could, in fact, um, say, look, in order to qualify, we would like to have X amount of months um, in escrow or whatever the case may be. So that's the first component. The second component, though, would be what is the agreement between the buyer and the seller? So um, if, and, and that would be the contract of sale. And does right. the contract anticipate this? And so maybe the, there's a provision in the contract which says that if 
the uh, if the board requires this, then the buyer does have to comply. Um, and That's a very good point. So, so it really part of it is yes, the co-op can do it, and then the question is, did the contract anticipate that this could happen? And if it didn't, well, then the the buyer, the contract generally says that it would be an unconditional approval. Let's say, uh-huh. and so uh-huh. if that that approval then would be conditioned um, on the escrow so the buyer may say no I'm not going to do that and I'd like to get my deposit back and get out of the contract that's actually happened to me a couple of years back yeah the co-op board required that the buyer got ticked off obviously um, and there wasn't a clause in the contract that um, you know clarified that so he got his money back and he walked away he said I'm not giving them any more of my money All right, listen we have to take a break Uh, we will be back but first you are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel don't go away Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at bluerealtygroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are back, and we're talking to Neil Garfinkel. He is partner in charge of Abrams, Garfinkel, Margulies, Begson, real estate and banking practices. And we are talking about uh, law or, or legal um, stuff as it relates to agents and, in some cases, some of the deals uh, that we do as agents. So, Neil, we just talked about, you know, um, co-op boards, but what are the conditions whereby the seller can actually keep the contract down payment or deposit if the purchaser of a condominium is in default under the contract. I mean, this gets to be a wide open kind of can of worms. Sure. But but what are those conditions? Right. So it's a great follow up question to what we were just yeah. talking about um, with the co op boards and the concept of what's in the contract. And so there's no automatic return of a down payment unless it says that in the contract. And this is another misconception a lot of folks have that they think that um, if the purchaser defaults, there's an immediate 
return of the down payment to the seller or keeping of the, and that is not generally the case. It all is a function of what does the contract say? And in most cases, the contract provides that if one party wants to make a claim for that down payment, they have to know the, uh, notify the other party, and then that party can reject that, and then we have you know potential litigation and so on. So one of the things that that I do as an attorney um, is I like to put in what's called a prevailing party provision, and what it says is, look, if you're going to sue and you lose, then you're going to pay the other party's legal fees, um, because without that, there is no incentive or disincentive to to say, okay, well, I'm just not going to return the down payment. And then the down payment can sit there for, you know, until someone makes that first move. We usually also require that a lawsuit be brought within a certain period of time. So again, that the money is just not sitting there. Uh, If we're representing a purchaser or seller, we don't want to be fighting over down payment. We want to be able to move on. And so again, it's all about what's in the contract. What are some of the, again, for the listening audience around the world who isn't necessarily, you know, familiar with co-ops and condos here in New York City or how we uh, manage those deals, what are some of the, the, the defaults that, that happen? What, what are some of the reasons for defaults, especially after a contract is signed? You use contract mm-hmm. assigned, you're obligated, money's deposited, earnest money deposited. Why, why, why default? Sure. So I would say that, you know, 99% of deals folks really want to happen. You know, we, when we all collectively do deals and we, you know, people do not, they want to go forward with the deal. Occasionally you might have, um, you could have either buyer's or seller's remorse. Um, and so uh, a situation could change. We do a lot of non-contingent deals. So, um, you know, what are, right. you know, we, they're not contingent on a mortgage and someone's willing to take a chance. Hey, I'm going to get a mortgage and something changes and they just mm-hmm. can't, they don't have the, fin- they can't obtain the financing to, to make the, the contract work. So they could default there. In some cases, they could decide that they, uh, that they don't want to go forward and they could make a bad faith application to a co-op or a condo, for example. Absolutely. So there's, so there's things that could definitely, Occur, but I would say that most cases the buyers and the sellers do want to move forward. If a seller decides not to move forward, the buyer has usually has what's called the right of specific performance. They can sue to make the seller sell them the property. So, um, so that's kind of the hammer that the buyer has. The hammer that the seller has is the down payment, which is usually ten percent of the purchase price in New York. Correct. All right, moving on to a rental uh, tenant is so. For example, a rental tenant is complaining that the apartment. Uh, he lives and does not have adequate adequate hot water. Is there a law that requires a landlord to provide its tenants with hot water and or heat during specific times of the year? Big concern, sure. big problem here in New York City. Yeah, for so example. there's actually there's a New York State law um, and a New York City law as well, and both do both. require. Yeah, both do require that um, uh, that there's a minimum of 120 degrees hot water. Uh, and that there is, depending on the time of year, um, if it's less than 50 degrees uh, between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m., then it has to be at least 68 degrees Fahrenheit. And if it's between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. and it's less than 40 degrees outside, it must be at least 55 degrees Fahrenheit inside. So um, it is it is clearly regulated. And what, what happens... It, I'm ahead, sorry, I, what is the timeline like? Because you know a lot of people live in buildings that aren't condominiums, they live mm-hmm. in individual, you know, old pre-war apartment buildings, et cetera, and some of those landlord associations can be hard to reach, et cetera. So is there a timeline that if you make a complaint to landlords, because I hear this more from friends than clients, mm-hmm. 
Um, you, you don't have hot water. You haven't had it for four days. You've called the landlord. There's been no response, et cetera. Is there some sort of timeline if you make a formal complaint that they have to comply? Right. So I'm not aware of that particular timeline. Mm. Um, however, I would say that if you're having a problem like that, you should certainly contact the city um, and the city will become involved. So, um, and obviously, if it's a particular building, there's lots of complaints. They will become involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but these things quickly. can take a lot of time. They can in uh, the middle of the winter. Yep. And so, you've got children that, and yeah, you kids. You know, I would again um, certainly reach out to three one one. For example, is a good place to start. Yeah. And then right. Be the building department and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Neil, what is New York's warranty of habitability, and who does it apply to? So the warranty of habitability applies to all residential leases, whether they're um, whether they're written or they're they're verbal, um, and it basically says that there are certain conditions that the property has to be in um, that that give you the ability to live there, right? That they gives you the ability to live there comfortably, um, and and um, and so, for example, uh, an issue with uh, secondhand smoke could be an issue of uh, meeting the warranty of habitability, bed bugs, um, and then certainly no heat or hot water would also all of those things could comprise um, a tenant's inability to live there comfortably and safely. Quiet and peaceful enjoyment, I think it's called. I can't remember the exact term, but right, so the how concept does that of quiet enjoyment um, is that you know, assuming that you do everything that you're supposed to do right. as a tenant, um, that you have the right to to enjoy that property. With the hopes that everybody who lives above you or next to you or below you also, you know, does sure. the same doesn't play thing. ACDC so on twenty at two a.m. Yeah, right. that's um, right. yep, that's New York City living. And yeah, that's it's the risk you always take. Sure. You have no idea sure. what's going to be next to you. I was watching a House Hunters <laughs> episode over the weekend, oh, you and it was love so this funny. Show. I love the show, but anyway, this couple. He wanted a townhome. She did not. The reason she did not, because she said she's tired of living underneath people. They used to live in New York. They uh, lived in Boston, so they understand, you know, stacked stacked living, as I call it. And um, she said, I'm not living in a townhouse with anybody walking over me. What did they end up buying? The townhouse, because it was the best out of the three sure. picks, whatever. Yeah. I thought it was amusing. I know that when we do co-ops and condos, we do our due diligence. As yeah. a buyer, we always... We review board minutes, and we we ask for representations that there have not been problems with noise or smoke or odors and things Mm -hmm. like that. We try to do the best we can to, pardon the expression, smoke out a a problem and see if there are issues. And I think, you know, we talk often on the show about uh, beginning agents, which are certainly welcome, and they're all over the place in New York City, and those that are seasoned. And we've covered so much in the show this morning that a seasoned agent— would go beyond the call of duty to, to ensure that their customers, their clients are going to have a good life to the degree that you can, which often and or always in our perception has to do with picking an incredible attorney. Yeah. So they do their due diligence yeah. well. And I would say on the other side with the agent, you know, seasoned agents, they have the the due diligence materials ready so that when there's an accepted Absolutely. offer, they have the offering plan, they have the name of the managing agent. Um, mm-hmm. They have set us up, us as attorneys, mm-hmm. to be able to go do those things so yep. we can get With the a deal completed done deal sheet. So let me just ask you, following up on the comment you made about the board minutes and stuff, so when you're looking for these things in board minutes, do you find that they're really pretty accurate with, with what is going on on a floor or in a building for odors, for for smoke, you know, secondhand smoke, noise, whatever, pests, you know, yeah. mice. So boards really, it, they 
they have a variety of ways of keeping minutes, and I would say that it varies. Some <laughs> some boards will go and will find unbelievably great minutes, mm-hmm. and other boards will you know kind of just be a sketch of what they an outline of what they spoke about. So it will vary, but that's why it's important as a buyer's attorney to request certain representations from the seller. Um, so that the seller can at least confirm that they haven't had any complaints uh, about those types of things that we were talking about. And I usually find that's where we find the issue. So we always review the board minutes, but it you got to make those what I call quality of life uh, requests for representations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is great for our listening audience. Are yeah. there, uh, quickly, is the board <clears throat> required by law to disclose in minutes things like, I was lived in a building downtown for a long time, one of the sweetest buildings in the city, and we had major problems with smoke traveling through the ventilation system. And this was a four-star building. Um, are they required to say things like that? There were also very private bed bug events. Bed bugs are big in New York City. Yeah. <laughs> and so are they required by law to have this stuff in their minutes? They're required fact- to keep minutes. Um, the bed bug is now legislated in New York. Smoke is not, but mm-hmm. it's becoming more of an issue. So they're required to keep those minutes. Do they always put everything in the minutes? They probably don't. Mm. So you have to be you have to be careful there. All right, we have a couple of minutes left, and before I go, I, I I have to ask you about trade. We're hearing so much about this. Can you tell us what it is and how it will affect the real estate closing process? You know, compared to what we've used to go through for a closing. Sure. So TRID is a federal law. It's an acronym for TILA RESPA Integrated Disclosure. Uh, my firm is 20 plus years old. We represent lots of banks doing closings. And this is by far the biggest change to the mortgage industry that I've seen um, in that 20 years. Um, really all, and it's a federal law, and it has to do with the disclosures that are given at the time that a mortgage application for a residential loan is taken, and then the disclosure that is given at the closing table. Uh, so uh, there is a new disclosure called the LE, the loan estimate, that replaces the good faith estimate and the truth in lending. Um, and then there is uh, something called a CD, a closing disclosure that replaces the HUD-1, right. which is kind of the standard document that's been used forever, which summarizes the, the settlement costs, the closing costs. The biggest difference, um, in addition to the fact that the banks have had to change all their, all their forms and processes, is that the... The HUD one, which is the old form, could be prepared at the closing table and given right. to the borrower at the closing table. That is no longer the case. This new law, TRID, requires that the CD, the closing disclosure, be delivered to the borrower three days prior, three business days prior to the closing. And so TRID is also known as a no-before-you-owe disclosure. The idea is giving uh, the borrower the opportunity to see what their closing costs are, what their charges are, have a chance to consider it, and then go, go to the closing table. So if you fast forward a couple of months, I think it's a really good law. It's just going to take some time to implement because, again, New York is different than other places. We do we go to a closing table, the attorneys, the brokers, everyone goes. And, um, and the idea of now having to deliver that closing disclosure prior, three business days prior to closing is definitely a big change from the way we've done closings up to this point. Right. How do you think that that can get messed up, though? Because I, you know, when I hear something like three days prior to an actual closing, you know, there's a lot of time between you know delivery and and closing three days. What what, what is sure. that? So um, you know, things like the walkthrough. When do you do the walkthrough? Now, mm-hmm. 
what what the law says is that there there's this three day waiting period, yeah. and then there's delivery. Mm-hmm. So um, the question becomes, well, what requires a new three day waiting period? What changes to the closing disclosure after you deliver the final one requires um, a new waiting period? And it's a change in the interest rate, a change in the product, for example, a fixed to adjustable. Um, and and so if those things occur, then you do need. Um, or a prepayment penalty, I'm sorry, if there's a prepayment penalty, you need the three-day waiting period. If you don't have one of those three things, then, for example, you have an adjustment for a refrigerator, in theory, you don't need uh, the waiting period, but you'd need to have redelivery. So is redelivery at the table? So those are the kind of things that could change. You have a mortgage payment is made, and the what we thought was the payoff is is actually lower. So that needs to change on the closing disclosure. We're anticipating that the banks will um, will create their processes for um, for how to handle those changes, as long as it's not one of the three things that requires a change to a, a new waiting period. All right. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Neil Gorfinkel, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we hope that you come back and visit us absolutely sometime soon. Good thank segment. You so thank much. you so much. We will thank be right you. back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are back. And you can hear them. The panel is here. Good morning, everybody. Hey. Good morning, Vince Rocco. All okay. right. Did everybody have a good weekend? Apparently. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Share. It was so beautiful. Oh, my, oh my God, God. The weather. The weather. The weather. Perfect. I have a question for you, Vince. Yeah. So did you have one of those events this weekend? Anything, a walk in the park, an incredible meal at a restaurant, an event waiting to cross the street that, that determines where you're sitting there as a New Yorker and you go, I love New York, or versus what the hell am I doing here? Did you have one of those little... <laughs> <laughs> I think we all have those on a daily basis. I was just, just, just going to say, a very good question, and I had both of those types of events. Oh, share. I mean, <laughs> Give it to us. Well, one of them was just, you know, uh, a walk in the park with my dog, and uh, it was a beautiful day, and walking down, you know, Riverside Park along the water is always spectacular. 
stepping up to the boat basin to have a, a glass of wine. Oh, God. Um, you know, reminds me sometimes of how much I really do like New York and how spontaneous you can be to do those kinds of things and take your dog with you because it's mm-hmm. an outdoor uh, mm-hmm. arena. <laughs> and then, of course, I had one of my taxi events. Oh, here we go. Do tell. Oh, no. It was, it, those. It was it's not a week without a taxi it, event. It was <laughs> not a day. Not a day for events. But anyway, you know, it, it was, it, it's, it's short and sweet. I get into this cab, and the guy is staring at me in the, in the, in the mirror, you know, the rearview mirror. And so it was, I'm going 10 blocks or whatever. So we stop, and I'm getting ready to pay and get out. He said, uh, excuse me, sir. Oh, I was going to the Apple store. He, I, he, I said, yeah. He said, you look like. Mayor Bloomberg. <laughs> <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> what do you do but with I'll that stuff? I'll take it, but I'll take right. it. The guy was dead You're serious. Much cuter. So he says, you can give me a nicer tip, can't you? <laughs> oh, oh I'm speechless. Wow. Thank you, Michael Bloomberg. First of all, I don't look anything like Michael <laughs> no. Bloomberg for those of you out there who don't know what I look like. Second of all, wow, is all I can say. Oh, oh my God. My. The guy I'd was dead serious. I'd be insulted the entire day. I laughed. I, <laughs> oh, that is just a Then family. I'm in the Apple store. You remind then then I'm in the Apple store and I'm going to to, to the genius bar or whatever. And so I'm I'm standing online by the front door on 68th Street. So it's all there's a glass bubble, yeah. as most people know. And I'm waiting online to make an appointment. All of a sudden there's this ruckus and this man comes flying up the stairs Standard. and two big police officers come and tackle him <laughs> right at my feet <laughs> and throw him down and they're yelling at each other and oh they're bouncing gosh. and everybody in the store, now you know there's zillions of people in the Apple store, just froze and stopped and said, whoa, you can hear a pin drop in the Apple store. All you can hear was this tussle on the floor <laughs> and this man being really pinned down but he was resisting arrest apparently he clipped something downstairs put it in his pocket and was running out the door so the the, the story goes so oh my all of those moments God. happened in one day so that's oh just a standard standard New York thank standard you. New York Speaking day right mayors, thank you mayor <laughs> <laughs> yeah seriously <laughs> ah, you know what else is pretty funny <laughs> just talking about what Ivy was mentioning I, I spoke to Perul and she said she was in uh, Washington Square Park over the weekend and uh <laughs> She said that there was uh, like five drummers in one place, and it was the most distracting experience ever. We've five? talked about this Why on the show. That? I know the I drummers. About, yeah, this is Ivy. our park. We're both, yes, me and Pro live blocks Ivy away. Then. Yeah. And uh, it was like there was a jazz musician with a drum going on one right. side, and oh, then right. the dancers and drummers on the other side. And I was just like, I'm middle. about to get up and pay somebody 20 bucks just to stop playing. So, <laughs> You know, there's always two sides to that story, but I kind of yeah. agree with you. Yeah. You know, you go to the park, sometimes you want to just be quiet, you want to relax and unwind. Join and then nature sometimes you that go, we don't have. Yeah. Right, sometimes you want to hear a nice little you know, yeah. piece of music that in the park. That being said, if you, want, if you want quiet, you go to Central Park. If you want noise, you go to Union Square or Washington Square. That's just how it works. That's yeah. how it works. Yep. Anyway, before we get into it, I want to just talk about uh, tra- um, air rights for a minute. The trading of air rights or the unused or excess development rights of a given site has hit an all-time high in the post-recession building boom here in New York City. The Times suggests that because it what it is what we can it is what can make the difference between a marginal and a profitable project. Air rights are also what made developments like 432 Park, 157 Central Park Tower, and the rest of those heavens-gazing buildings possible. Now that projects of that size are popping up all over the city, it's hard not to wonder when the madness will stop. Property Shark has created an interactive map that shows the availability of remaining air rights throughout the city. Unsurprisingly, the village is is bone dry in relation to its zoning, overdeveloped even. Unused air rights in Manhattan still do exist, but it's not 
or cannot be found around the island's edges near places where major projects are going up, like Hudson Yards, Orc Stell's Lower East Side Tower, 1 Manhattan Square. i got to tell you, these air rights um, are interesting because I know a developer who's made a lot of money selling air rights mm-hmm. to other you know, surrounding buildings or to new developments uh, close by where he, he lives. So... It's astounding, and you wonder when you see these glass, tall, sliver buildings, you know, people build that high because they're buying air rights from, from Everything someplace. around them. Where me, else, they well, gonna, where else are they going to build? Me, well, but what's well, such a place left to, but to sure. go but up? But yeah. what's really interesting is I heard, well, one story I know from before, and I heard a great story over the weekend. I was out with buyers on the Upper West Side in the West 80s, which is landmarked, and the— uh, other broker was telling us that a, a certain well-known celebrity lived right down the street, had their own townhouse, and used her air rights to add, I think, two floors. Which I was thinking to myself, this is a landmarked neighborhood. I don't know how that it has works. To so I thought, it has to be set back. Has to be. You can't see it from the street. It yeah. has to be set back. You, I, good. Um, I just learned something. And the other one was true. another West Side. Uh, I think it was the Normandy, which is a big old-time Art Deco building mm-hmm. on Riverside Drive. Yeah. Bought air rights from the building next door in one direction so it wouldn't block the views of the people on the upper floors, which I thought was so... See, and I think this is how air rights... rights. Yes, I think initially all these things are how air rights should have been used. Mm -hmm. And then the second use of that air right is is you buy it to protect the view and then then you you hold on to it and then you sell it once you're done with it. Don't give people ideas. That's savvy. It does happen. It's excellent. It it does happen. Anyway, I'm here with Perul, with Ivy, with Deborah and Niall. And let's get into, let's talk about purchasing co-ops in New York City. It can be a real odyssey, as we all know. With even with many options on the market, securing a place that fits your lifestyle and budget can leave you with only a handful of viable choices. Factor in each building's financial requirements, and you may be down to just two or three co-ops that you qualify for. And then there's the interview with the board, a nerve-wracking process, even for the most well-qualified applicant. But even after the stress and paperwork, many applicants don't finish, don't make it rather past the finish line. And that's when it becomes pretty sad. For a successful admission process for both boards and applicants, there are several legal and practical matters that both parties should keep in mind. The co-op admission process in New York City is rigorous, often requiring a stack of detailed paperwork and financially and personally invasive interview questions. While it may seem impossible to secure a decent co-op residency, applicants who are professional thorough and honest seem to be most successful. Well, you know, I think that's partially true. Anyway, so let's break this down. And we all deal with with um, buyers and and whether it's condo or co-op, uh, we still have a board process. But so who are the best applicants when when you're when you're out with people or people actually come to you? Let's start at the beginning. When people come to you and say, "Hey, I want to buy a co-op." You know, you go through a vetting process, I'm assuming, because I know I do, with them. Who are the best applicants when you know you're targeted it's going to be a co-op? Someone who's employed. Well, that uh, helps. No, because start. a lot of students say they may be graduate students. They may be um, in medical school or something big deal. And they say, I don't want to be throwing out money on rent. And everyone says I should buy. But if you don't have a certain income, and each building has a formula, and they're pretty similar, though— then they're not interested in talking to you. Not only that, but uh, it's if even if you have an income, if you are in finance, for instance, or private equity, and and you are one year in at your company, and your compensation is very small salary, and most of it is bonus, 
that can be problematic with a lot of co-ops as well. Mm-hmm. So even though you have mm-hmm. a job where your bonus is going to be a big balloon payment of like, let's say $500,000, mm-hmm. if your base salary is a, is 100000 it's kind of insane, frankly. But I also understand. I mean, it's insane in the sense that a co-op board, and this is New York City, Everybody, like, I mean, so many people are in the finance world or have that sort of a payout plan uh, that you think there'd be a little more acceptance and understanding. But on the flip side, there isn't because of the fact that that payout can get pushed off to the next year. Mm -hmm. And there is somewhat cavalier behavior that they have seen in the past from this group of people. Perul, it's a very good point. But on the heels of that, and I I worked in sales and technology for many years. So, for example, how do salespeople get away with with their income because most of the time at least in technology your base salary used to be fairly low mm-hmm. and then your commissions were based on your your performance Us. and you could yes. make Us. lots and lots of money or even agents exactly agents. Yeah. I mean, we have inconsistent zero. yeah we have inconsistent right. we have a zero salary yeah. um, and that makes us very difficult for co-ops well a lot of the what we wind up doing is Accountants, your accountant will write a letter. PPA even letter. let's say the building only requires to see one or two years of income taxes. Mm. If you have done really well and people knew the market was going up, a few times I have included three or four years of income mm. tax to show this person is a stable person. Mm-hmm. And another problem, actually, which people aren't really thinking of, but as the baby boomer generation, the largest generation, is aging, there are many, many people who live in the tri-state area who decide they're going to retire in the city, mm-hmm. which is a great mm-hmm. idea. It's a wonderful dream. But if you're already retired and you're only taking Social Security, and yes, you have IRAs, you have 401ks, but those become liquid, which is what the buildings want to see, liquid assets, something that could be liquidated in 24 to 48 hours. But again, you may not have as much as the building wants to see to live in the city. And also, in, in your retirement funds can be liquid, liquidated, but you're also now retired and going to be using those funds. Right. So yeah. they're well, That's why be, they consider it. They're Most going to be dwindling. buildings do not consider, if you're not taking from them, mm. if you're below 65 or whatever the magic number is for the individual, then retirement funds are not considered liquid. They're considered gravy. They're mm. really not considered liquid. And this is where a lot of agents get messed up, where... They might get a board rejection. They can't figure out why, but they either counted retirement funds as liquid assets or a person might be self-employed. They might own a fantastic, super chic uh, uh, sweatshirt shop in the coolest neighborhood, but they might be commingling their business funds with their personal funds. And that, what people don't realize, that's an instant board rejection because boards believe if the business goes bust, there goes all your equity. So that's something to worry about. Yeah, that's, that's, that's yeah. a very good point. All right, we have to go to break, but when we come back, I'm going to ask if cash, an all-cash uh, deal in a co-op makes any more uh, sense. So we will go to break. We'll be right back after these messages. You are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, welcome back, everybody. I'm here with Perul Brombat from Compass. Ivy Ray from Blue Realty Group, Deborah Hoffman from Town Residential. Welcome back. You've been gone for a couple of weeks, and now Lundgren from Compass. Welcome, Deb. Thank you. I missed you all. Uh, <laughs> really, so Deb. good to be we back. We had a nice yeah. holiday. All right, so getting back to our topic, we were talking about who is the best applicant, and we're talking about some of the concerns with people who are independent contractors or salespeople who don't have steady incomes or have lower base salaries. And as I think Perul said earlier before the break, that you know when the boards look at this, you can have a balloon payment at the end of the year. A very I, listen, I know people make a million dollar bonus, but their salary may be a hundred thousand dollars, for example doesn't always fly by the board. So my question is, with all of that said, uh, and we're assuming that that was a finance deal, what if somebody with that kind of um, uh, uh, salary or structure comes in all cash? Does that help? You know, all I want to say is for our listening audience, if somebody just joined us, that we're talking about co-ops, not condos. For the most part, yes, correct. Yeah, I mean, most of these issues, you have an issue buyer, the thing to do is shop condo. But we're talking about co-ops with our experts. Yeah, oftentimes people agents. you know jump to a condo because they can't qualify exactly. for a co-op board, yes. so that's correct. Yes. Yes. So, so I just I just had a, a buyer. We uh, ended up closing in seventy seven Bleecker Street, and um, nice he's, he runs a hedge fund. Doesn't take a salary. He owns the company as well. Just mm-hmm. gets crazy bonuses. Um, and you know, when I first looked at, it, I was like, "Look, this could be a little bit problematic for co-ops." Um, and seventy seven Bleecker is a, is a building that's notorious for being a hard co-op board. Very um, so. The, the best way to do it, and you just talked about being all cash, is you know we, we were all we had an all cash deal. Um, he showed you know in excess of a couple million bucks, which allowed the the call board to feel very strong that he was um, you know a, a qualified purchaser. He also showed three years of tax returns to demonstrate that look he's been making you know this sort of money consistently. Um, and we even wrote in the uh, offer like on the uh, the front page cover letter. We said, you know, if you would like anything else, we're happy to provide, you know, two years of uh, maintenance in escrow mm-hmm. if that's what it needs to shore mm-hmm. up the deal. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, look, the guy makes crazy money, mm-hmm. but we still said, hey, look, you know, it's an all cash deal, and if the, if you're still not comfortable with the situation that he just makes purely bonuses, we're happy to also do this. Of course, they didn't opt for it in this situation, but that's something that you know to be cognizant of, you know, at the at, at the beginning to kind of nip that in the bud is very important when you're structuring well, a Kudos to deal. you, because you know we, ta- we were just talking with this with our former guest. 
um, you did your due diligence. You actually, you set up a package. You had your A plan, your B plan, your C plan. You had everything for them. That's a tough building you have to. That's what experienced agents do. That's what I'm saying, is that kudos to you for being a seasoned agent and giving them an offer. They really would have, you know, they couldn't refuse in a sense. And for the the audience as well, um, the important thing is, you know, I think a lot of times when I'm doing a co-op deal, a lot of the clients are confused. The buyer's a little confused. Like, why do they need all this information? and fine, here's this and here's this, and it's disparate, and then I'll be asking for additional information that sort of ties the story together. Here's what is important to understand. A co-op package is not just financials, like this is how much you make and this is it. That's more like a rental package. A co-op package basically shows a story of you financially. Mm -hmm. It's a story of your life in a financial sort of way Mm -hmm. um, where the co-op is really trying to understand where you come from, where you're going, where you're at right now, and what does that mean for the co-op having you as a member of it. Following up on what Perul and Niall just said, I had two clients, very similar to the one you're talking about, Niall, during the heart of the economic downturn, where all the buildings were terrified about finances. And I did something very similar to what Niall did. But in addition, and thank goodness this is what these people did, these were not real cowboy uh, hedge fund guys who every time they got a bonus, they bought a boat. They bought a second home. They showed a trail from for I think one was five years um, from that account, whatever fund it was, that it went right into the account. So he was showing he was fiscally responsible. This number right. one, number two, along the lines of what uh, Perul said. What I find so fascinating during the heart of the economic downturn, and this is what I tell people who balk at this quite often, is foreclosure rate in Manhattan at its highest was Mm -hmm. (laughs) 2.7%. And that's because the co-ops saved us. The way they Mm -hmm. vet people, the way we would moan and complain and... Mm -hmm. They saved us. Yep. Yeah, because when, that, that, yeah. that vetting process trickled into the condo process it as well. Did. It yeah. really has to the point where, you know, most of us and most of our buyers certainly mm-hmm. do not love it. Right. Uh, however, you're right. It's, it's, yeah. it's very true. In 2010, just for the fun of it, I looked through every single foreclosure in Manhattan. Three or four were condos. Mm-hmm. They were all townhouses. Mm-hmm. Wow. They were all investment townhouses. Absolutely. Again, in that year, yeah, yeah, everything was yeah. different, and there was one co-op. Right. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I just wanted yeah. to comment on Niall's uh, comment. Uh, kudos to you is right, because that's a tough yeah. building, and to get your guy through um, was amazing. And then the point I want to make there is, you know, co-ops do not allow purchasers to buy with an LLC or a corporation or a company. So in this particular case, your guy owned the company. He could have easily shown the finances of the company, which are obviously very good, yeah. uh, but he couldn't. So you figured out a smart way to get around that by you know showing his personal <clears throat> income in a way that was going to fly past the board. That's the key here. Co-op boards do not accept companies buying in their buildings. You can get away with LLCs in condos, but yep. you can't do that in, in co-ops. You know, so I think if we were going to answer what the best... You guys have had great stories, and I what the best uh, potential buyer would be for a co-op, if we could choose it, it would be um, running on what all of you have said. But uh, I liked Parole saying that it's really a story that's essential. Absolutely. And so it's a financial narrative. It is. And so possibly our best customers would be individuals with foresight. You know, I want to buy 
and I want to buy, say, in four years down the line, I'm going to make a narrative that's going to get me in wherever I want. Well, it's you called know? thinking and it's called planning, especially yeah, if you want to live. It's working also in working in with a very, very experienced broker Correct. because, as everybody knows here, because we couldn't stop talking about it, Niall and I had a deal together last year. And I had about five seconds of hesitation because we did have multiple offers on this deal. Five seconds of hesitation of taking Niall's person only because it was a co-op. He had a green card. He was a foreigner. And many co-ops are worried that the finances will disappear. Mm -hmm. But Niall, as Perul said, told the story. Mm-hmm. He had a record here. He had all his money here. So important. It mm-hmm. was, this was a dream buyer. And he was a really nice guy too. Yeah. <laughs> so, but Niall did his due diligence. And when you work with seasoned, knowledgeable brokers, mm-hmm. you won't get screwed most of the and, time. And to follow up on a little comment that sort of, I think Deb just sort of said it naturally, you know, and he was a really nice guy. Here's the truth. The truth of the matter is, is as much as we want to think that this is just a numbers thing, it's just, you know, it's impersonal, it's it's a purchase and a sale. The fact of the matter is, is as a broker, your reputation, your relationships, we've talked about this before, are just tremendously important in the same way your client's attitude during a showing, especially during a co-op showing, is also something that affects brokers, the other, the seller's broker even. Because here's the thing, we're all human beings and we can't get away from that common denominator. That's why all business, to me, I learned this in real estate, but I think all business is psychologically driven because ultimately the, the commonality in all business is that we're all human. And so if you neglect to sort of take that part into account, then you're missing a big piece of the interaction. And I have to say something on this. I had a board rejection a number of years ago that I did not see coming. These people were financially qualified. They were a pleasure. He was a well-known sitcom producer and his wife was, she was an attorney who never practiced. They were a pleasure to work with. Their finances were great. They were going to be a slam dunk. The moment the board package was turned in, it's like a Jekyll and Hyde situation. She turned into the Wicked Witch of the West. (laughs) These were the first people I ever took out to dinner to prepare them for a board interview because I was so worried about her attitude. And I basically said, just don't say anything. Don't sit with a uh, (laughs) pasted-on smile on your face. Just, you know, be yourself that you've been for so long. Well, we did get a board rejection. And I had the buyers. I spoke with the selling broker, who was a friend of mine, who was also close with the board. And what we found out happened was they came in for the interview, and he was the nice guy he is. She sat down, crossed her legs, crossed her arm, and shook her foot. You know when somebody crosses their legs? Shook her foot the whole time with a look on her face like, I dare you. I dare you. And they were thinking about it, and the board rejected them because they said, this is a smaller building. They're buying the apartment next to the mailboxes. He's great. We don't want to see her every day. Oh, right. That's exactly oh, what they said. And, and she's a ticking time bomb. Attitude. Yeah. The I'm swinging shocked. leg, the tight yeah. legs. The that is an unbelievable like, story. Only so. in New York. Crazy. Only in New yeah, York. Yeah, so that's something to keep yeah. in mind. Behavior. Yeah. Isn't that something? You know what she's saying? Like, and, and, and you want to know the kicker of that story? The kicker of the story is she's going to say, but I didn't say anything. <laughs> she did. That's what she said to me. Well, absolutely. That's what she said to me. Well, I did what you said. I didn't say a word. <laughs> and there you go. Look. But you said a whole lot more. <laughs> it comes down to the A word, and that is attitude. And it's yes. always 
important in a co-op. We, we, we're <laughs> running out of time, so we'll save the other two comments for uh, next time. But, you know, just to wrap up the segment, you know, the tips and the do's and the don'ts in a co-op interview are very important. And it's important that you talk to your clients before that interview because you can pass the paperwork, pass financially, and then show up and socially you're dead. Anyway, that is our show for this week. Thank you for joining us on Good Morning New York. We are back next Tuesday morning, 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific Time Live. You can always catch the show later in the day on podcast or anytime on our website, voiceamerica.com. For all of us at Voice America all around the world, thanks for joining myself and my panel, and we will see you next time. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.